Ourselves Black is a place where we own the narrative and are unapologetic about our goal, to share imagery, information, and stories infused with knowledge that promotes black mental health. This is the Ourselves Black podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Y. Vincent. On today's episode of Ourselves Black, Addiction and Black Mental Health, part one of a two-part series with guest expert, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. A well-respected physician and educator, Dr. Harrison is the Chief Medical Officer for Anca Behavioral Health, Inc. She earned her bachelor's degree in biology with Spanish and chemistry minors at Howard University, completed medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and general psychiatry residency at Emory University. She is board certified in adult general psychiatry and addiction medicine. She is co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform and currently serves as campaign psychiatrist for the Let's Get Mentally Fit campaign. She is the wife of a stock market investor and mother to two sons aged 11 and 13. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Ourselves Black podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to have today's guest on the show. She is a uh, dynamic person and speaker and educator and clinician, like just everything. Um, and I know she's going to impart a lot of knowledge uh, to the listeners today. Uh, Dr. Nzinga Harrison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Vincent. That was a lovely, thoughtful introduction. And uh, this will actually be two parts, and so we'll have Dr. Harrison um, on the show twice uh, with the topic of addiction. Um, and so just as an introduction for our audience, Dr. Harrison, how is it that you came to develop your interest in this topic? So it's interesting. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a physician from the time that I was about six years old. I would tell people, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher when I grow up. Um, and so my initial plan really was to be a pediatric surgeon. So I did college and um, at Howard University, HU, you know, and then on to medical school at <laughs> University of Pennsylvania at Philadelphia. And as I was going through medical school, um, you know, you have to do your rotations in every specialty to gain kind of like your base competence as a physician. And I never, ever considered psychiatry as an option until I did my psychiatry rotation. I think importantly, growing up, I grew up in an activist family. So my father was the commander of the local Black Panther militia as I was growing up. And so activism is baked in my genes and baked in the way that I was raised and as I started doing my rotations, then I realized kind of the stigma and marginalization and just like complete lack of appreciation for humanity that even in general was had for people that had psychiatric illnesses, but also even among other physician specialties. Um, and so as I did my psychiatry rotation and I started learning about the biology of the brain and the interplay of the brain and the body and how chemicals and electrical signals in the brain inform behaviors and choices that people make, then I really started to see like what I thought would be the perfect fit for me, which would be being able to be a physician, being able to be a teacher to other physicians, being able to treat a population that was marginalized and mistreated both inside medicine and in the general world. And then my attending, um, so sorry to use medical language there, the doctor that was teaching me when I was a medical student was uh, very much into addiction research and researching the biology of it and the psychology of it and the social consequences of it. And I just fell under his tutelage into 
um, a population of people who are amazing people who have very severe illnesses that are kind of not given opportunities around every turn, and it matched my physician, teacher, activist phones perfectly. And so I chose it, and it turned out to be a wonderful choice for me. Yeah, and in some ways it sounds as if it kind of spoke to you and chose you. True. I would say that's accurate, definitely. Um, and so you, you touched a little bit on your experience as a trainee and how it kind of shifted uh, your orientation and your career trajectory. What's it been like as someone who has gone through the process and become a psychiatrist and an administrator? Um, what is your experience like working with addiction now? Yeah, so after medical school, um, you choose your specialty, so I chose psychiatry and did a psychiatry residency at Emory where I had the joy of really working in a population in Atlanta. We did most of our training at Grady, um, and so the population was, you know, majority black, uh, which is my population that I love, underserved, kind of lower income. Um, and lower resources, so really what we call the underserved population that in general is unappreciated uh, in medicine as well as other parts of life, but then certainly if you add psychiatry on top of that. And then after psychiatry training uh, is where you specialize in addictions. And so once I finished being a physician in training and I came out as an attending physician, then um, I came into a community organization where literally my job was to build the competence of this organization to recognize um, people who had addictive disorders as well as develop the competence of the physicians and the therapists and the social workers and the case managers in that organization to serve individuals that had both some other psychiatric disorder as well as um, an addictive disorder. And so as I was practicing clinical medicine, so taking care of people who actually had addiction and helping them to, um, you know, develop the motivation to get sober and then actually get sober and maintain sobriety and get their lives back and give back to the community, then I was also not just treating patients, but I was educating the community around them, both just in that organization, but also kind of the larger DeKalb County community. And as I went out in the community, it, you know, turned out that people were hungry for this information. A lot of the stigma um, that our patients with addiction were experiencing was because people, one, didn't know how to recognize addiction as separate from that person's personality, and then two, once they recognized it, didn't know what to do with it. And so I set about, um, you know, creating learning opportunities and consulting for organizations and educating communities um, kind of in a larger sense, just like churches and pediatricians and schools and therapists and parents and friends and family members. Um, and so I've really had a, a uh, what's a word that I can use? Fulfilling. Fulfilling and meaningful career kind of trying to make a difference with the centerpiece of that being reducing stigma and increasing knowledge about addiction as a disease as opposed to what people think addiction is, which is a character flaw. Right, and that's why you, you love technology, right, because you don't have to be in Atlanta uh, mm -hmm. to hear from Dr. Harrison and to hear her, her insights. And so I'm going to ask you to put your educator hat on um, if, if you ever take it off. 
Um, <laughs> and talk about what addiction is, and, and you started to go down this path, but addiction as an illness. Yes. So in the broadest sense, uh, the way I help people conceptualize addiction is um, through the symptoms. So the first thing I want to say is that what you see as people when they're in active addiction are the symptoms of the illness. And so the symptom is continued use of a substance, whether that's alcohol, cigarettes, cocaine, pain pills, methamphetamine, marijuana, you could go down the list. So continued use of any substance or continuing to do any behavior. So we have addictions that are behavioral, food addiction, sex addiction, gambling addiction, violence addiction, right? So continued use of any substance or continued um, behavior despite mounting consequences. So if you look at uh, animals, uh, human beings being an animal, the thing that changes behavior is consequences. So when you're little and you touch a hot stove, you get burned and your brain learns, oh, don't touch a hot stove because there's a negative consequence to that. It's dangerous, you'll get burned. And you have these feedback loops in your brain that are electrical and that are chemical that kind of allow you to do that kind of learning. Moving into addiction as an illness, which originates in the brain, those circuits can get hijacked. So drugs can hijack those circuits that say, this substance is dangerous or this behavior is dangerous and the behaviors actually run through the same brain pathways that the drugs do. And they, that part of your brain that's responsible for saying, oh, let me change my behavior because the outcome is dangerous, gets hijacked and doesn't work. And so when a person, say, gets addicted to alcohol, alcohol has some positive effects. If you're very anxious, alcohol can calm you down. If you're scared of something, alcohol can make you feel braver. Um, if you, you know, you're stuck in the house, alcohol can get you out of the house. And so in some ways, the alcohol starts as helping, but then as it starts to change your brain biology, starts to change your body chemistry, and you start getting consequences. So your loved ones say, you're smoking too much. You go to work drunk and your boss says, you're going to lose your job. You drive your car drunk and the police say, you're going to go to jail. There should be that chemical electrical loop in your brain that then allows your brain to say, these consequences are negative and outweighing any benefits from alcohol, so I choose not to use alcohol. But because that pathway in the brain that's not functioning properly, that decision can't get made. And then the addiction builds, builds, builds on itself. The consequences continue to rack up, and that's when you start really seeing people die, and before you even physically die, kind of like die in life from addiction. So homeless, lost job, lost family, lost finances, lost connection to others. Um, you start seeing this physical consequences of addiction, which can go through any, any of your organs in your body, from your brain to your heart to your liver to your kidneys to your joints to your immune system. It affects everything. Um, psychologically, you start to see a change on the perception of the world. So if anybody has ever been in a period in their life where they felt like they couldn't see the positive, the drugs actually change that, but then the feedback, like the rolling snowball, actually changes that, and it feels like there is no other choice 
And then I talked about the social consequences. So that was long. You asked me to put on my educator hat, so to put it into the book. And you did. You did it. For people, right? Continued use of a substance or continued behavior despite negative consequences directly as a result of abnormality in brain pathways. That's what addiction is. And that was fantastic. So if you look at it this way, it forces you to challenge some of the language that we commonly use around um, addiction, right? And you mentioned earlier the, the, the idea that this is a character flaw or the misconception that it's a character flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak some more to, to the language that we use and, and why that matters? Yes. So language is critically important, not just um, when talking about addiction, but really, period, just throughout your whole life. I think we're often not aware um, how hurtful or how damaging our language can be or how our the words we use can kind of make ideas that are not helpful persist. So if you think about the words that you commonly hear used with addiction, then you'll hear that person's an addict or that person's a crackhead or that person's a crack hoe or that person's an alcoholic. Um, Or even if you look at the other side of it, when a person gets in recovery from their addiction or to use a medical word when their symptoms go into remission, then you'll say, oh, that person has been clean for whatever period of time. When you look at these words, you say, oh, you've been clean, then of course the opposite of that is somehow you were dirty or sullied or not good enough when you were in your active addiction, right? Crackhead um, doesn't generate any compassion. It makes it seem like just making a choice as opposed to having a severe illness. And so the way I like to help people think about this is like think of another illness, okay? Let's say breast cancer. Can you think of a word that people use towards uh, individuals who have breast cancer that's as negative as crackhead or cracko or addict, you can't, right? Think of um, diabetes. You can't think of a word that's so negative. And it's because those are really conceptualized as medical illnesses as opposed to addiction, which is just like you're a terrible person that makes terrible choices and doesn't deserve to be respected. Um, and that kind of thinking and addressing people who have addiction with that kind of language actually compounds the problem because it goes back to that psychological and social part of the illness that I said keeps pushing that snowball down the steep hill and removes the hope of a person uh, that they could ever get the support needed to recover from an addiction. And so what I try to get people to do to change their language, and this is really for any illness, because it's not this illness that defines that person's entire worth. So instead of saying that person is an addict, you say uh, this is a person with addiction. Or that person is a crackhead, you say, oh, this person became addicted to crack, right? And so it's trying to separate the symptoms of the illness from the person that that illness is affecting. The same with clean and sober. You'll never hear me say clean. Um, you'll hear me say sober. You'll say, hear me say this person was able to get in recovery, and this is how long they've been in recovery. Um, so to give one more parallel with cancer, in, in medicine, active illness is when your symptoms are active, and then you get some kind of treatment 
and then your symptoms go into remission. Um, and so it's not necessarily that your illness is gone. So think about high blood pressure. You have high blood pressure. You go in the doctor, the doctor says your blood pressure is high. They tell you diet, exercise, they give you some medicine, right? So diet and exercise are the social interventions. The medicine is the biological intervention. Your blood pressure comes down. Your, blood pressure, your high blood pressure is only in remission because you are actively working that treatment formula, biologically, psychologically. They were like, get your stress down, socially, diet, and exercise. When your stress goes up at work and you stop exercising and you go back to eating salty foods and you stop taking your medications, then what happens? Your blood pressure goes back up. You relapse, mm -hmm. right? The exact same thing happens in addiction, but people get mad at right. the person that their illness has relapsed. So they have active addiction. They get treatment. We have medications. We have psychological interventions. We have social interventions. They get in recovery. Their symptoms are in remission, but that addiction as an illness is not gone. It's just being treated with the formula, biological, psychological, social. So when their stress goes up at work, and they stop exercising, and they stop eating right, and they start hanging around people who are using, then their illness relapse and the symptoms come back. So it's the exact same process, but our conceptualization of it is negative for addiction and just the medical illness for high blood pressure. And so I try to help people get to just an illness for addiction, which is difficult because it affects people, you know, relationships. But right. if you can approach it from that way, then you can try to not take it so personally like this is directed towards you because it's not. It's an illness. Right. And, and, and it's, it's so powerful to look at it that way because, as you mentioned, that shame compounds it for that person. Yes. And so yes. it's actually dangerous to, to use the sort of language that, that is often applied in those sorts of situations. It is actually dangerous. And, and that's not the intention, right? You're not, most people who have addiction, their loved ones want them to get sober. And so right. they don't realize that they're actually decreasing the chances of that person being able to get sober by feeding that shame. Shame is one of the number one drivers of relapse for people with addiction. And Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for, for putting on your teaching hat and we'll have you, have you back to do some more uh, with our audience. But for people who have heard you speak today and are interested in collaborating or learning more from you, what is the best way for them to get into contact with you? The absolute best way is through my website, which is nzingaharrisonmd.com. Um, I always chuckle a little bit when I say you really can just Google me. So if you Google nzinga, N-Z-I-N-G-A, Harrison, then my website will come up as well as some other things that I've done. But there's a contact us tab on that website, and that will get you to me. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you just search Nzinga Harrison MD, then my handles will come up on all of those for you. Great. And we will have Dr. Harrison back to continue our discussion uh, about addiction. <laughs>